by grace we're saved through faith, but we're also created for good works. And part of the good works is be the hands of God, to love his people. And, and uh, identifying who that is has always been the challenge. It was the challenge in Jesus' day where they go, hey, who's my neighbor? And so sometimes they're not easy to love. I want to try to give you a little bit of equipment tonight as we continue this little series we're doing on the cross. I, I went back today and counted, and this would be the eighth lesson that we focused on the cross. I went into this not knowing if we had two lessons or 200 lessons, and I still am a little bit smarter. I know I don't have 200, but I've certainly had a lot more than two. And I know I have one for next week. So we're going to do the cross this week and next week at least. And um, I, we could go a long time. I'm not trying to wear it out and belabor it. I'm actually starting to feel a little turn towards a, a Pauline epistle that we might walk through when we're done with this. So uh, I'll keep you, keep you posted as we roll into that. Um, but I encourage everyone that's watching and everyone that's listening to go back. Most of these titles have had the cross in it at some point. There's a couple exceptions in there. Uh, or at least one exception in there. I think we did one right in the middle uh, called Die Like a Man that was sort of the follow-up to The Cross Teaches Us How to Die. Otherwise, they've got cross in the title. This one's no exception. The cross as a gift to the ungodly. One of the earliest messages that sprang up in me when we started this. In fact, it was going to be the first message of this entire journey. I was going to do a sermon called The Cross as a Gift because I was starting to frame the cross through the lens of it was God gifting the earth with his love, gifting the earth with his forgiveness and his righteousness. And I backburnered it, not because it wasn't great, a great thought, but I think because the Holy Spirit had some things he wanted to say in me that the other seven or eight lessons needed to inform. So I'm learning on this journey, whatever journey I'm on in the spirit is, is follow which one of those flags stays. I've told you this little illustration. When those fluttering flags of like, who you could preach that? And I, whichever one stays the highest on the flagpole by the end of the week, that's the one we preach. Um, the others are good, and they're still fluttering, some of them. And they'll move up and down that pole. Maybe they'll never get preached. Um, but as, as this has developed, um, I've I'm gaining an appreciation for the cross as more than just for my sins, more than, than just to relieve me from the curse, more than just to bring me into the new covenant, but to really peel the layers back on this thing and see that there's a lot going on at Calvary. To do this tonight, I want to start with a little Paul scripture from Romans 5. There's probably no greater spot in all of the New Testament to really come up with our salvation theology than the book of Romans um, for whatever purposes Paul wrote this, and there's varied reasons he lands on some of the greatest um, little segments of theology that we have as believers in regards to what is happening when Jesus dies on the cross. So let me just kind of, let's work it for a few minutes from Romans chapter 5, verse 6, 7, and 8. I'm reading tonight from the NRSV. This lays the language out in a way that I think is a little truer to the Greek. And so... I, I want to, it might be a little bit unfamiliar to the ear and we're going to do it and then leave it for a little while and try to work on some of these words. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You could probably spend six months on that verse. At the right time, Paul said in Galatians, at the fullness of time, Christ came. So Paul has this theory 
that there was a clock counting down in eternity. And when it hit the midnight hour, Jesus came. I know he doesn't frame it that way, but that's sort of the way Paul preaches this. Is like there was a moment in God's economy, God's clock, when he went, all right, that's enough. And if you can start to see the cross through that lens, if you didn't see the cross any other way, but Jesus died for my sins, if I could get you to get one more thing, it would be this. And if you could get this, this could open doors for you. Is that the cross was the moment where God went, all right, I'm done with this stuff. And the reason that I might be sounding melodramatic, so let me try again. If you get that, then you don't have room for, boy, it's coming. Because if, if God's clock counted and then Calvary happened and God went, all right, that's it. Then God's not in heaven right now with a countdown. And he's going, boy, they're, they're, they keep passing those laws. They keep putting so-and-so on the court. They keep doing this. I'm going to come down there. And I read a, a guy today that said this, you people are about to see the other side of the coin. The violent Jesus is about to show up. Oh, no. I went, man. And that's, that is a prevalent message in the church, though not always spoken so starkly. We're getting bolder. Social media has really helped make us bolder because we can, we can hide behind widget names and you know, emoticons and whatever and be anonymous and say all this filth in the name of Jesus that has nothing. Just see what sticks. See if you can get some followers. The other side of the coin is about to happen. You people are about to meet violent Jesus. That's our hero. We think our hero of revelation comes in with a sword and roaring like a lion and biting people's heads off and swimming in the blood of his enemies. And you know my feelings on that, and you know how bad of an interpretation that is for one of the most beautiful pieces of literature the Bible contributes, the book of Revelation, this image of Christ. But if you didn't get anything else in the cross series, land here. God's countdown happened already, and God didn't start the clock over and go, we're going to start the egg timer over again and count down for America. And count down for England and count down for China. No, in God's economy, in the fullness of time, Jesus came to go, all right, let's take care of this business. And from that moment on, God's not counting down, God's counting up. From that moment on, time begins in a new kingdom. The kingdom, this is how Israel would have heard it, the kingdom that has no end. That's Old Testament prophecy. Not the kingdom that's counting down. The kingdom that has no end has begun in Christ. It's a lot of theology in verse 6. I didn't plan on saying any of that until I read that to you. So there it is. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. That's, a, that's an incredible moment. No one's going to die because you are righteous. No one cares to die for righteous people. Righteous people are snobby. Most righteous people are self-righteous people. No one's going to die for a righteous person. Somebody might die for a good person, but probably not even that. And so Paul then takes the illustration one step further and says, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you've paid attention to seven, eight makes more sense. Let me read it this way. God proves he loves you in that he doesn't wait until you are righteous or good 
but instead let the clock go all the way down and die for a bunch of sinners. Because if he was going to wait on you to be righteous and he was going to wait on you to be good, it'd still be tick, tick, ticking away in glory. But instead, God says, that's it. There are none righteous, there are none good, and there never will be. So, in the fullness of time, Christ comes to die not for the righteous and not for the good, but to die for the ungodly. Our title tonight was The Cross as a Gift to the Ungodly. Don't miss that. By saying that, we're not saying this. The cross is not a gift to the godly. The cross is not a gift to the righteous because it's not. It's not a gift to good people. It's a gift to bad people. It's not a gift to godly people. It's a gift to ungodly people. This is why you bring your ungodliness to the cross. You don't bring your godliness to the cross. You bring what you are, and what you are isn't much. And that's your first great admission in life. And bringing what you are, which is not much, to Jesus who is everything. And meeting Him at, the, at that countdown. Meeting Him at the place of His death. Now what's it mean to be ungodly? Let's start there. Asibis, in the Greek. Impious, wicked, destitute of all toward God. That doesn't mean much to us. Kind of... That, those definitions, those are just sort of classic Greek definitions. Really, people just couldn't care less about God. We call that ungodly. But Israel had a different definition. And so I want to work on that because Paul was Saul, right? Paul is Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus knows Torah. He knows Old, Old Testament. He knows Hebrew Scriptures. And in knowing Hebrew Scripture, he frames his definitions off what he knows as a Hebrew. He doesn't frame his definitions off what we know. So what they would have seen as ungodly has a little bit of a different sound than maybe what we see as ungodly. Let me give you an example. Joshua preaches his final sermon, for lack of a better term. It's really just a speech. He gives a speech to Israel. He's about to die. This is right at the end of the book of Joshua. The Bible goes into a really dark spell after Joshua. From Joshua, you go to Judges. And the Judges are a time when there's a phrase repeated over and over in the book of Judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Judges is a dark world. So right before they enter that world, Joshua recounts the journey of the children of Israel, and he does it this way. I just want to read three verses from Joshua 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors... Terah and his sons, Abraham and Nahor. Recognize these guys? Terah is the father of Abraham. Abraham becomes, of course, the father of the children of Israel. They lived beyond the Euphrates and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Now, the, the verse ends with a semicolon. It really is just going to run into the, a brief genealogy of Israel. And then it takes them into Egypt and they become slaves and they come out through the plagues and they go through the Red Sea. Joshua recounts that all the way up to their day. I don't want to do that. I, I want it for purposes of what we want to do tonight. You saw what they define as ungodly in that text. Didn't mention sin, didn't mention any of that other stuff. It just had to do with on the other side of the river, the end of verse 2. They lived on the other side of the Euphrates and they served other gods. That's Abraham. Abraham serves other gods. 
It's very possible that Abraham is a part of the cult of Molech that sacrifices their children in the fires to strange gods. It might be why Abraham isn't completely stunned when God says to him, take Isaac, your son, your only son, up the mountain and sacrifice. And Abraham just grabs Isaac to go up the mountain. Now we, we know Abraham has got faith on the way up because he says to Isaac, the Lord shall provide for himself a lamb. That's the great theology of the lamb Christ Jesus. Sort of hidden in there, but you get my point. Out of serving other gods. So for Israel, the idea of ungodly are all of those people on the other side of the river but to connect them to those people. I love how God does this. He doesn't let Israel forget that where they came from was the other side of the river. Who's, who's on the other side of the river serving other gods? Abraham. Then I took Abraham from beyond the river. Where's Abraham living? Over there serving other gods. In other words, Abraham is ungodly. And God doesn't take Abraham after he becomes godly and make him the father of many nations. He takes Abraham while he's ungodly and begins to make him the father of many nations. And Paul's working with that when he says that Christ didn't, God didn't wait for you to become good and God didn't wait for you to become righteous. God called you when you were unrighteous. And so these, I got some thoughts tonight. God's habit is to call ungodly people while they dwell, quote unquote, on the other side of the river. When you're not living in the right place, in the right space, and you're ungodly and you're serving other gods, maybe you're serving yourself, you're serving money, you're serving your lust, you're serving your own stuff. You may not even think you serve anything, but you do. Whatever hogs your attention, and, and, and usually wherever you spend your money, that's kind of the way we define it in our economy, wherever you spend your money is what matters to you. It's what takes your attention, becomes your God. That's where, that's where God goes to work. He gets us all ungodly when we're on the other side of the river. He doesn't leave them there, but he does go meet them there. The cross occurs on the other side of the river. And the resurrection is the promised land beyond that river. This is why Israel's story becomes a mirror for the Christian example. When Paul says Israel was baptized into Christ, and he talks about us being baptized into Christ. When was Israel baptized into Christ? Crossing over either crossing the Red Sea, crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land. And the Promised Land doesn't become heaven, by the way. The Promised Land becomes the land of your inheritance in Christ. And the land of your inheritance in Christ has a lot of hell in it. There's giants in the Promised Land. There's problems in the Promised Land. This is why you're not problem-free now that you know Jesus. You just know Jesus, and He's in your problems. You're, it's better to be in your problems with Jesus than to be in your problems without Jesus. I like to say it this way. If you're going to go to a fiery furnace, best to have a fourth man in the fire. I mean, you're going to go into, here's the thing. You're going to go into a fiery furnace. Best to have a fourth man in the fire. Because if you're going to go in, it's good to go in with Jesus. So you're going to go into a promise. You're going to go into your tomorrow, go in with him. So resurrection then takes us into that promised land beyond. We do not wait for the ungodly to become godly in order to love them. If God loves them, we do too. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we get down to practical theology, not just heady academic theology talking about ungodly and justification and forgiveness rubber meets the road boots on the ground loving the ungodly becomes my day-to-day -day existence it helps if you can start from the starting point of realizing that you are the first ungodly person you met that's the best place to be 
Like, I gotta go out and find some ungodly people. Okay, start by washing your face in the mirror because the guy you see in that will be the first one you run into today because he's gonna carry with him a bunch of stupidity. Oh, I know identity-wise you're the righteousness of God in Christ. I realize that you are forgiven and I realize that you are godly in Christ Jesus. But I also realize that you carry a whole bunch of you and I realize you carry a bunch of stuff and you do ungodly things and it doesn't make you ungodly in his eyes as far as righteousness. But if you can start by realizing that you are the one for whom Christ died and he dies for the ungodly, then that will be the best place to start. Go back to the Romans 5 text and jump to verse 10. We're just a few verses on up where Paul says this. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will be saved by his life. So the enemies is pointing back to the earlier text where Paul said, when we were enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Same thought. If that happened then, here's what we need to realize was actually happening. Go back real quick. Sorry. Romans 5.10. There you go. What was actually happening is we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus that having been a done deal, our salvation comes through the resurrected Christ. So Paul lays out, for, for simplicity's sake, this dual thought. The cross reconciled me back to God. It brought ungodly people. Who, who, who's the cross for? Ungodly people. It brings ungodly people into a reconciled state with God so that there's no gap between God and ungodly people. Why is there no gap? Because the time clock of heaven, God went, all right, I'm tired of this chasm. I'm going to go down there and do something about it. Jesus, and I know I'm simplifying the cross, but Jesus then becomes the, the alarm clock of heaven. Ding, ding, ding. That's the darkness at the cross. It is finished. What's finished? All of it. God goes, I'm done. I'm finished with them over there and me over here. I'm going to go to where they are and die in the middle of them. That's the other side of the river. There, it's where they all live anyway. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to reconcile them to myself. I'm not going to have anything against them. There's nothing separating me from people. Well, isn't ungodliness separating us from people? Not if you understand the cross, it's not. Because the cross was for ungodly people. And what was the cross doing? Reconciling the world back to God. Bringing them back. This is why I say you're forgiven whether you like it or not. Forgiveness is done at Calvary. It's not done when you ask for it. It's done at Calvary. You walk it now. What's the next step? You walk in it as you become aware of it. We're saved by his life. I'm already reconciled by his death, but I'm saved by the life of God. What we're inviting people to do when we ask them to come to Christ is to identify with his death at Calvary so that they can walk in his resurrected life. And we realize that that's a process. Not because God's slowly reconciling, making sure they're really serious. No, he's already reconciled. It's a process because we have to reconcile ourselves to that knowledge and then allow that resurrection reality to start to come out in us. This is why we don't get to be the ungodly police. Because first of all, God died for all the ungodly people. And secondly, I can't tell who's who. 
I can't figure out who's who. You go, yeah, you can. Just look at them. The ungodly, no, it doesn't work that way. They've all been reconciled to God. They've all been forgiven in Christ. Now, they may not recognize it, and because of that, you're going to see some filthy lives, and you're going to see some wickedness, and you're going to see some people that hate God and refuse to acknowledge His existence. Yes. Are they reconciled to God too? Yes. God's even reconciled Himself to them. He didn't start the clock over. He's already reconciled Himself to them. What He wants to see is them come into that knowledge to receive his life so that they can live his life because that's the life of the new man on the earth. Why? Because the other man is living in an old world. Time's up on the old world. And this is why Paul's theology says, when you didn't know him, you were dead in sins and trespasses. Why were you dead? Because the clock's already expired on the old world. You're just living in the old world. You come to Christ, you resurrect into the new world. That's why Paul goes, in Adam all men die, so in a new Adam all men shall be made alive. Paul's theology might be way past ours. Well, that's an understatement of the year. It's far past ours. And as Paul might be recognizing that there's only death in that old place, and there's only life in who Christ is. And then the cross becomes this. The cross becomes the point of justification for ungodly people. They're not justified because ungodly people become godly. They're justified at the cross. Ungodly people being justified at the cross. Not someday, but at Calvary. It's the justification for ungodly people, not godly people. It's the access point into right standing with God. The cross is an intervention of love that brings ungodly people into reconciliation with God. It is our faith in this event, our joining Christ on that cross that leads us into His life, providing salvation from... What do you need to say from? Truly. Because for a lot of us, our theology was only saved from hell, and that was in the future. Maybe it was saved from our sins, but for a lot of people that, didn't, that weren't raised in the world, I mean, I was raised in the world, as in I lived in the world, but I wasn't raised in the world. I was raised in the church. I didn't have to come out of sin to come to Jesus. I just had to come down the aisle, you know, and kneel down right here at this altar and accept Jesus. And the first time I consciously did that, I was six years old. The first time I remember consciously saying, I want to serve Jesus, saying the prayer, receiving Jesus, baptized. I didn't know, honestly, I didn't know any less about him a week before I did that than I knew about him the night I did that. And my, my point is that that was all I was raised in, was that environment. So the only thing I knew I was being saved from was a future hell. That was it. What do you, what'd you get saved from? Well, we're going to go to hell. And so I've had to learn that my salvation, first of all, is an ongoing process. My salvation was not a one-night event, one night only. <laughs> because grace is not a one-time event. Righteousness is not a one-time event. The resurrection is not a one-time event. I just did this in the Apostles' Creed. I'm, I'm doing the Creed on the podcast. He, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. 
And on the third day, he rose again and he ascended into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father. I got to ascended. I was doing this one today. And it just really struck by the presence of the Lord on how little we teach the ascension in the church. They said the problem with not teaching the ascension is that the resurrection becomes a past tense event. And you can imagine that the disciples are standing in a room and Jesus walks through the wall. And they go, whoa, is that really Jesus? And they get into an argument about whether it's really him. One of them goes, that's not really him. And then Thomas, oh, I got to touch his hand. You know, you know the story. And then he's gone. And they don't see him again for three or four days. And then they're, they're fishing one day. And boom, there's a guy standing on the beach making fish by the fire. And where'd he come from? And I like to think they ate with him. And then boom, he was gone. And that's what resurrection's like for about 40 days. Like, is he real? I don't know. The ascension goes out of their midst. And I don't know if he goes up. The text says he goes up. But it could just be, a, it might not have anything to do with direction. What, what it means is they watched him. This was the first time they watched him go away which let them know that he's still resurrected. Before, they didn't know who he was. Who's it? Whoa, I don't even know if he's real. He just walked through the wall, boom, disappeared. What's that? But as he ascent, the ascended Christ, then the, rec the recognition of the early church is that resurrection thing isn't a one-time event. He's, that's for real. That, he, he's really alive and he ascended into heaven where he's waiting on me. They had this very real sense of he's up there waiting on me. So when they faced oppression and persecution from the Roman Empire, and they're, and they're asked by the soldiers, will you renounce this Jesus of Nazareth and declare Caesar to be king? They could laugh. I watched him ascend. He's waiting on me. What are you talking about? Caesar's not the son of God. I watched the son of God. This wasn't just some ghost that went in and out of the room. He's over there. That's, and that becomes so real to me as I was teaching that today that with a return to the ascended, seated teaching of Christ and his finished work, we get a progressive revelation. And then I saw this, the sun, the S-O-N in Acts 1, the sun rising in front of them so that they would always see their resurrection as the sun, S-U-N, rising progressively. And I think that might be what the angels meant when they said to the men in Galilee, why do you stare up into the heavens? That same Jesus you saw will come go away, will come again in like manner. And I don't know that they necessarily meant he comes down slowly. I think that they very well could have meant you will see him that way again when you look for that Jesus. Look for the ascended Jesus and you'll, he'll come again in your heart. He'll, he'll descend again into who you are. That's... That's continuous resurrection. That's a living Jesus. That's why I've come too far. I can't go back to the other dead side of the river. You, 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 once you've experienced that resurrecting, ascendant Jesus, then I know I'm being saved from whatever, man. And a bunch of it's my own foolishness and my own stupidity and my own junk. But the salvation is all his. All right. Romans 4, I want to work through these. It's a lot of verses, but I really just want to point some stuff out. We're not going to work them too hard. I want to head to the end. This is the previous chapter. It's Paul working his way into what we just read. To the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, faith is counted, reckoned. That's an accounting term. 
Faith is counted against the ledger as righteousness. Now look at that one more time. This one I am going to work on for a second. The one who doesn't work but trusts in the one who justifies the ungodly. God does not justify the godly. God justifies the ungodly. Let's say that again. God, look at line one, into line two. God does not justify the godly. God justifies the ungodly. Your starting point at a, at a revelation of justification is know that you're ungodly. That is the, that's for me for whom Christ died, the ungodly man. If Christ justifies the ungodly, faith then counts for that man as righteousness. That's why David pronounced a blessing on people to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. David was ahead of his time because there is no indication in the Old Testament that you could have righteousness without your works. But David said, blessed is the man for whom, blessed are those for whom their iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count sin. Wow. Forgiven, sin's gone, God doesn't count your sin. Look at that last line. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count their sin. You can't overpreach that line. We're under preaching that line. You can't overpreach that line. Blessed is the one to whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 8, 9. Is this blessing then pronounced only on circumcised people or is it pronounced on uncircumcised people? There's a million dollar question. Who gets it? Now, we, see, we frame this in Jew-Gentile terms because the Jews were circumcised and the Gentiles were wrong. And we're not wrong. That's definitely there. But think about Abraham because this is where Paul's heading. Abraham, when God called him from the wrong side of the river, was he circumcised or uncircumcised? Un. Because God calls ungodly people into justification. So Paul's reaching all the way back pre-Israel, pre-Jewish. And he's saying, so... If the blessing of God is that way, then is it on circumcised people or is it also on uncircumcised people? We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Well, then how did it work? How was it reckoned? Was it before or was it after he had been circumcised? And then he answers his own question and says, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. That's a code word for ungodly. While he was still in his ungodly, uncircumcised state, he had faith. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of everyone who believes without ever being circumcised and who thus have righteousness counted or reckoned to them. And likewise, the ancestor of the circumcised who are not only circumcised but also follow the example of faith that our ancestor Abraham had before he was circumcised. So faith becomes the capstone for Paul. He goes, whether you're circumcised or not, he goes, it's the faith that Abraham believed God to follow him. And that's what the cross asks for on the other side of the river. I come over here for the ungodly. If you'll come follow me, I'll take you to the other side of the river. Here's some thoughts. I just wanted to land in a practical way. We live in a politically charged and divisive environment. We are pressured to have opinions on every topic and take sides in every argument. We have little patience for ambiguity or indecisiveness. Even if we can see a little bit of Jesus on both sides of the aisle, we are pressured to pick a side so that we can either be trusted or so that we can be dismissed. And man, is that not true? 
You go, well, I see a little Jesus. Yeah, but what do you think about this? What do you think about that? This is so that we can either dismiss your entire theology or we can accept your theology. We've, we now have gatekeepers of theology and they're politically charged arguments. Whichever side of the aisle you fall on on the politically charged argument tells me whether or not your sermons are worth watching. Like, how do you feel about this political figure? And if you feel positive about them or you feel negative about them, sways whether I trust your entire theology, whether I'm even going to listen to your ministry, based on what you think about this topic, this person, this thing, this is dumbing down our faith and it's dumbing down our spiritualism to the point of the most shallow argument we can make so that we can dismiss the, anything else. We, we come in in the most shallow possible way so that we can dismiss or trust if Christ died for ungodly people and if we could just admit that all are ungodly, both sides of the aisle, both sides of every argument, both sides of every theology, both sides of everything we've ever divided ourselves over. If we could realize that Christ died for the ungodly, then maybe we should work to be on the side of right, quote unquote right. And I don't mean that politically right, politically left. I mean the quote, the right, as much as we work to love the ungodly. How do we do it? Know that you are loved, even in your ungodliness, and you are equipped to love the ungodly. Jesus said, the new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. What does it look like scripturally? Luke 6, 35, 36. It looks like this. Love your enemies. Do good. Lend. Expect nothing in return. Your reward will be great. You'll be children of the Most High. For God himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Mm. God himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Why is he kind to ungrateful and the wicked? Because the clock expired. God went, time's up. Not time's up, I'm going to come kill you all. But rather, time's up. I'm going to come do the work. I'm going to come be kind to the ungodly and the wicked and the ungrateful. So what are we supposed to do? Be merciful in the same way that the Father is merciful. And so, if I could learn that on all sides of the spectrum, ungodly, and Christ died for all of the ungodly, which means he died for all of them, then maybe I would realize that my job is not to land on the political left or the political right. My job's not even to land in the political center. Like we're not called to be apolitical. We're not called to be in the middle somewhere. We're not called to be on the right. We're not called to be on the left. We're called to be part of the kingdom. Loving out of the kingdom to this world. Our call. Like our father. Kind to the ungrateful. Kind to the ungodly. Kind to the, un kind to the wicked. I want to I, I bring it home with this thought. This, uh, uh, let's ask an ungodly question. <laughs> if we're using the phrase ungodly. Then let's pose an ungodly question. And to do that, you got to trust me. And you do. I think. All right, so let's look at the cross. Let's change lenses for a moment. Let's think about this. 
Could we make the argument that from a certain vantage point, the cross was compromise and complicity on the part of God? Because he looked at all the ungodly people and he didn't make them change. He died for them anyway. Sounds like compromise. He didn't bring them the justice they deserved. Sounds like complicity. It was God who could just come smash everybody and make them pay. Through a certain lens, could you argue that the cross is compromised and complicit? I, I told you, trust me. I know we don't ask this because we're afraid that that's disparaging God or afraid that it's disparaging the cross. The cross doesn't really seem to care what we think about it. The cross stands as a beacon of love. Paul planted his flag on while we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. He went, the cross is standing on the other side of the river. It went over into the ungodly to grab Abraham. It goes over into that space to grab us. Abraham should have died. But the cross offers him a way out. Through a sort of jaded lens, you can say the cross is compromise. The cross is complicit. And that's why we're doing this. And this is the end. This is all I got. We got people who are arguing the gospel from the right politically and arguing the gospel from the left politically. We're having a hard time finding anything to do this on because, not because we just disagree politically, but we disagree spiritually to the point that we don't have any room for the other. Here's what it sounds like to me, and, and you do with this as you will. On the right, our question is, oh, you want me to love her, but so I should just compromise my morality and love those and, and treat those people equally and love them. I should compromise my moral code and love them. That's what we say on the right. On the left, we say, so I should just be complicit with the injustice those people are committing. Because if I love them in the middle of committing that, I'm saying that their injustice is okay. Both sides are screaming that as loud as they can in the name of Jesus. I can't, the right say, I can't take stomach what's going on over here. I got to lower my standards to, to, to hug that person, to love that person, to accept that person, to stand up for their liberty. And on the other side, we're going the, 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 the shot across the bow. I can't stand the injustice bigotry, the hate, whatever. We, we always categorize through words. And so I got to be complicit in what they're doing and our inability to see that through a certain lens, the cross might very well have been viewed as God's compromise and complicity with us on the wrong side of the river. If we could get that revelation, then we might be able to walk across the aisle, whether we're coming from this side or this side and say, I don't have to agree with anything politically, but I am required by the example set by my Savior to show you the same love shown to all ungodly people of whom I am chief. That's why Paul said, of who I am the chiefest of sinners. Because he got it. He says, I'm not asking you to take sides. I'm asking you to realize you were saved while you were ungodly. And so are they. And so are you. And so extend that love. These kind of messages always give me, get me some kind of negative feedback. Somebody always hates that because they only hear the side that bothers them. I really tried to slice that baby 
both ways. Because I don't really, I don't think in the heart of the Father, he looks down at us and goes, those people are totally right, those people are totally wrong. I think he looks down at us and goes, they're all on the wrong side of the river. I got to save them from themselves. And sometimes you're going to see some Jesus in this side. And sometimes you're going to see some Jesus in this. Why is that? Because you're also going to see some ungodly. Jesus is camping out amongst ungodly people. We don't get to pick. We just love them all. That doesn't mean don't vote. Doesn't mean don't have your politics. That doesn't have anything to do with loving people. That has nothing to do with loving people until it does and then listen to love. And I don't know when that is, but listen to the sound of the Spirit. And if you hear him, listen to the Spirit. That's the best I've got for the cross as a gift to ungodly of whom I'll say as Paul did, I'm chiefest of sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for what a wonderful time we've had just going through this text and seeing if we can find you. It's not been hard. And Father, I've had such a revelation today of, of this progressive resurrection, this, this idea that, that you are the sun rising in my life. And I don't, I don't want in any way for any of those revelations to, to cause me to want to go inward so that I get another revelation, like this turns into revelation party. I want the revelation so that I go outward, so that I love because I know I'm loved. And help us to see that cross as a gift. In Jesus' name, amen.